Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview on the book of Leviticus. This is the third book of the Pentateuch, or the third book of the Old Testament, depending on your tradition. And I think, as we'll discuss in this interview, it's probably one of the least loved and least read books, either in the Christian or in Jewish study of scripture. But it's something I found really interesting recently, and I came to it because I've recently really been reading about sacrificial systems and their internal logic and the types of theology that they imply, and I've just found that a really fascinating topic. Instead of thinking, oh, this is weird, or why would people do that, to actually think, well, no, why would people do this? Why was this meaningful for people? What vision of the world did it imply? So I got really lucky with my interviewee for this episode, um, really my first choice person to come on, and he kindly agreed, uh, Professor Joel Baden, who's someone... If you're watching this on YouTube, he has a lot of other content on YouTube, other interviews. He's also done a number of courses. He's done some courses you can just do for free online on Genesis and Exodus. So I guess in some ways this is like a mini sequel to that, or perhaps like a, a trailer for the full sequel. I think he will teach a full course on Leviticus later this year or next, I'm not quite sure. So anyway... Professor Joel Baden is Professor of the Hebrew Bible at Yale Divinity School. He works in that field with special attention to the literary history of the Pentateuch, and is the author most recently of the Book of Exodus, a biography with Princeton University Press in 2019. His other books include J.E. and the Redaction of the Pentateuch, the Composition of the Pentateuch, Renewing the Documentary Hypothesis, the Promise to the Patriarchs, The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero, Reconceiving Infertility, Biblical Perspectives on Procreation and Childlessness, and Bible Nation, The United States of Hobby Lobby. So, um, I usually say I think these interviews speak for themselves. For this one, because... Like I say, I've been kind of nerding out on this stuff a bit recently. There perhaps is a tiny bit of knowledge just assumed in the interview, which I sort of apologise for. I generally try to make sure everything's understood by any audience. What I'm going to do for this one is, hopefully you can just watch it and appreciate it on its own terms, but I'm going to link to two other interviews, both on the channel Digital Hammurabi, which I really recommend if you don't follow them already. One with Joel Baden on the documentary hypothesis, which we cover very briefly here, but essentially that's how the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament, came to be put together. We give a very brief overview here, but if you want to really get into that, I'll link to that below. And in fact, I'm going to discuss the documentary hypothesis in more detail in an upcoming episode. Um, but if you want more information on that, check it out. I'll also link to another interview about how 
the authors of the Old Testament conceived of God physically. In other words, put simply, what did God look like? Um, which, again, we touch on briefly in this, but if you do want to sort of explore that topic in a lot more depth, again, links in the description below, along with links to my podcast and my Patreon. Um, as some of you will be aware, I'm doing this one in both video and the usual audio only. I don't think it makes a huge difference, honestly, for the interviews. I am going to have like a video essay coming out. I've been saying soon for a while these things, it turns out, are quite a lot of work. Um, but I just wanted to give the audience more options, so for guests who are down to do a video, I've been releasing it both ways. So if you're listening to this on audio and you want to see the video, um, I'll link to that in the podcast's show notes. So, apart from that, let's get started. Apart from, as always, to thank my Patreons, had a few more people signing up to sponsor the show this week, which is terrific. I don't do any advertisements at all on this channel, and um, yeah, so it's really just the voluntary support of listeners chipping in a few dollars here and there covers all of the costs associated with it, so thank you genuinely to people who do that, and if you you know, have an extra couple of bucks to support uh, public philosophy like this, then please consider chipping them in. It's uh, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And to everyone who already sponsors, as well as people who just help support the, sh the ch channel, channel, by sharing uh, on social media, or um, recommending to friends, or anything else that helps um, new listeners who might like this sort of content find it. Thank you so much. You are genuinely awesome. That, that actually wasn't a scripted moment. I had a martini in front of me, and I reached for it, and it just felt natural to toast the camera I was talking to whatever. Let's get... Let's get straight to the show. Thank you to all of the sponsors and sharers, and I hope you find this topic as interesting as I have been recently. So, this is Leviticus with Professor Joel Baden. Okay, I am joined today by Professor Joel Baden. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the Political Philosophy Podcast. My pleasure. So, just for people who um, might not be familiar with you or your work, what's like a short, potted introduction to what you do and what you like to write and study? 
Yeah, uh, my interest is primarily in, I mean, I'm a professor of Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. and my interest within that, which is a pretty big book, is primarily in the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, and within that uh, literary corpus, I'm largely interested in sort of literary questions. Uh, why does the text look the way it does? How did it come to be? Uh, what's its compositional history? What can that tell us about, um, you know, sort of the, the various minds at work uh, in ancient Israel when and where these were uh, uh, these texts were composed? Uh, and you know, so it's it's not so dissimilar from studying the literature of any any culture, uh, really, uh, because most of what I do has to do with sort of identifying the various uh, threads and uh, literary texts that sort of were combined to make up the the Pentateuch as we have it. Uh, a lot of what I end up doing is uh, sort of isolating and recognizing voices that often sort of aren't visible to the naked eye uh and uh and and voices that um that are often very different from each other and from what we think of as like the bible um so i'm gonna blame you for the chop topic i chose for this which is um <laughs> leviticus because as i was as i mentioned briefly before we came on i found you because i was interested in sacrificial systems and i found your twitter and then i found some of the talks you'd done and anyway, I reached out to you. I asked if you you could come on do an episode of on Leviticus. You kindly agreed. Um, and so to do a bit of research, because this you know not an area I'm super knowledgeable in, I watched a few other talks on it. Some, to be fair, coming from like the Christian tradition, and I realised that in religious studies, nobody likes Leviticus. And it all started with this sort of like, you know, when the teacher's trying to convince you, you know, it, it might not sound like it's going to be interesting, but it really is. Anyway, you sold me on the fact that it actually was interesting. So if though, I, also, <laughs> though I also preface everything, every time I teach it or talk about it, I also preface it with, I know this is like hard to read and, and, and can be super boring, but. Yeah. Um. Someone put it, it might have been you, it might have been someone else I was listening to, someone put it as, this is the part where people start skipping. And oh, it's... it sort of made me laugh, because I, I did think back to, like, God, I wasn't raised religious, but, like, you know, at some point in, like, my teenage years, I figured, okay, let's give this thing a go. And and actually, the f Genesis Exodus are quite, like, fast-paced. The story keeps moving. You can, you know... Mm -hmm. And then you just suddenly get, now we're going to talk a lot and in detail about sacrifice and priests. And it's sort of like, oh, geez, where did, yeah, where, 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 where did all that come from? Where does the story pick up again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it feels like a sort of brutal uh, sort of shock uh, to jump, to jump into this material. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll say we all, we say Leviticus, but that's, that's like sort of quick code because in fact that stuff, the terrible hard to read stuff uh, starts in Exodus mm. um, where we have, you know, there's like a dozen chapters. Leviticus, Exodus is a 40 chapter book. A dozen of those chapters are detailed blueprints for making uh, like the sanctuary, the tabernacle and, and then, uh, and then the actual making of it. So it's like, it's, it's brutally, boring and it's repetitive because they say here's how you do it and then like word for word they do it and then like and like you're already so your eyes are already glazed over and then you get to leviticus and it's like uh 
so what are we going to do with the blood now? And you're like, ah, like, where do they, where did they, when do they encounter, like, when do they start moving again? And like, where's the story pick up? But, you know, if we flip it on its head uh, a little bit, if we think about it, the, the places where the story slows down mm. are the places that the biblical authors cared about, right? Like the fact that they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then they did this and then they did this and then like generation, generation, and, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's great. Like we can do, I can do all of Abraham in like six chapters. That's mm. fine. It's whatever. It's, it's more than that. But, you know, Isaac gets like three chapters and then, um, you know, they're in Egypt for like a couple and there's some plagues and then, you know, it's fast paced. And then they're like, okay, but hold on. Cause I really need to go through this in detail. Yeah. That, that should tell us something like that should signal to us. This is the thing that they thought was more important that they were like, you really, we, I can't go fast through this. Like we need to take this seriously. I made the exact same point when I did a lecture series on Machiavelli, very different text. And I sort of said, everyone, when they start with Machiavelli has like three quotes in their head from the prince on issues he touches on like once. And then he's going to spend the whole back half of the discourses on, like, the minutiae of military strategy and, like, why some people, you know, are hardier soldiers than others. Yeah. And, and our eyes glaze over, we want the beloved, not feared stuff, or feared, not loved. But that that's a pretty reliable key to, like, what is important to an author. He's like, what are they spending their time writing about? Yeah. And, I mean, we should recognize that, like, in the history of interpretation and tradition, uh, like we've reoriented what's what's more important. I mean, the amount of interpretive energy, especially in Christianity, that's given to texts like Adam and Eve, hmm. right, or um, the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, you know, these uh, these are texts that, if you look at the the sweep of, especially as I said, sort of Christian interpretation, uh, Christianity is clearly cares more about those, hmm. right, by the amount of space they give to it. Um, but within the Bible itself, outside of the chapters about Adam and Eve and outside of the half chapter about the sacrifice of Isaac, um, no one ever refers to any of those things again. Hmm. Whereas I've got, you know, two full books worth, basically, between the middle of Exodus to the middle of Numbers that are just about this detailed priestly cultic stuff that. Uh, there's just way, way more of it um, in, in, in the Bible itself and way more care given to it. Yeah. So maybe let's let's just put this in context. So I'm right in thinking that if you're approaching the Pentateuch, you're not looking at it like you would the New Testament where you've got Luke and Paul and whatever, distinct works by distinct authors that are sort of self-contained units. The thing that we talk about the five books, but it's meant to be a continuous series. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. If the, if I, the five books is a false distinction. It's five volumes of one book. Right. right. There's no. There was never. A, some, no. No one was like. And now I'm going to write a book of Exodus. Right. right. They. They were writing this. They wrote this story that started back in at creation potentially, uh, and then they kept going. And it turned out that you know the thing that was produced. It's more complicated than this, but essentially the the the, the Pentateuch as produced was just materially too large to fit on a single scroll. So they divided it at like reasonable moments into into five scrolls. And then we started, then we gave those scrolls names. And then they sort of took on a life of their own. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're not talking about, 
we're not talking about five distinct books. We are talking, as actually in the Gospels, about distinctive authors, though, hmm. but just not authors who are tied to Genesis, Exodus. Those aren't different authors. Hmm. Um, what we have instead is it's as if somebody took the four Gospels and said, yeah, four stories of Jesus is nice, but what if I had one story of Jesus and like took them all and combined them into in, into one story? Right. Which, for the record, happened. Did. Right, we, we, ha we, we have that text. It's, right, it's from the second century uh, CE. It's called the Diatessaron by a guy named Tatian. It's still, uh, you know, a text that's used in Eastern Orthodox churches. So like that's, that's the same principle, basically, uh, applies to uh, how the Pentateuch came to be, which is there were multiple histories of Israel's like early days from creation through the death of Moses. And someone was like, eh, I don't need four of these. Like, give me, I'll take one and took the, the four excellent ones, uh, or at least these four, uh, and smushed them together into, uh, into one continuous story. Uh, but one that, as you read it, is full of, you know, weird bumps and uh, contradictions that that show us, right, uh, that, that give us the evidence for there having been multiple authors at work. So you have the creation of this thing is like the goal, or I guess you could deduce the goal through like redactive criticism of to create a story that's that makes sense chronologically, but might not make sense in terms of like all the specific details and what have you yeah. within it right right and so, it makes sense chronologically because that's how our brains and lives work right like time passes and things happen in order and if they didn't you wouldn't know how to understand it really um uh but you know it's so the chronology is an important aspect right mm -hmm. putting keeping everything in chronological order uh but also you know the, the other principle at work here seems to have been one of um preservation mm -hmm. Uh, whoever put these together really didn't want to cut stuff out of any of them. Um, and how do I know that? Well, because it's still full of all the contradictions that, that show us that there there were multiple uh, authors at work. Somebody who was free to edit as they saw fit would probably not leave in, you know, redundancies and problems and, and all these things. Um, so, you know, with, an, with a preservationist and chronological uh, ordering sort of sensibility, you know, you take these four things, you go, okay, I guess, you know, I guess the one that starts in the beginning probably should come first. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then you just, it just goes from there, right. What has to come next in all of these stories. And, and it just gets, uh, gets put together that way. When I tell this story, like, and I'm not like saying, I know this is right. or I even have the capacity to assess the claim. I always put the date of this, the, the editing together, not the original sources, as like early Persian period, just just after the exile. I mean, that, and not that I'm saying that's right. That's just like the the marker I have in my head. Yeah, it's know? it's 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 cl it's close enough. I mean, we don't have a precise date for it. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a story in in the Bible itself, right? We have the the story of the of the figure of Ezra um, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that seems to describe something pretty close to this, right? Ezra's a scribe, familiar with the law, and he comes he comes at, from the exile back to uh, back to Israel and says, and, and reads this law book aloud to the people, and they all, their, their reaction is all like, whoa, I didn't know that, like as if, as if it was the first time they'd heard it. So, you know, that's a, a small piece of evidence that, I'm not saying it was Ezra who did it, but like there's, a, you know, there's a story that puts it in exactly the time period you're talking about. 
And there's, uh, you know, there's evidence also within the Bible of texts like Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles, books that are from that early uh, or mid-Persian period that seem to clearly be responding to uh, the existence of not just the Pentateuch, but the existence of a Pentateuch that has contradictions in it that require solving. Hmm. Um, so I, your time period is basically basically there. You know, early, mid, late Persian period, it's in there somewhere. Okay. So where are we at in the composite story? Well, let's just, just do the composite one first, because, like, I think pretty much everyone um, will be broadly familiar with, like, the Genesis and Exodus stuff. But where are we at? In, well, yeah, let's just start with that. Where are we at in the composite story when we start Leviticus? Yeah. Um, so we are, uh, you know, we have gotten out of Egypt... Um, uh, that was that was the book of Exodus, and we've made our way to the mountain Sinai mm -hmm. uh, in the wilderness, uh, and all the stuff that we think of, all the cool stories that we think of at Sinai have happened. Uh, the Ten Commandments have been given, and uh, laws have and laws have been given, and a golden calf has been built um, uh, and destroyed. And so, where we are is. Um, the moment is that now that uh, and at the by the end of Exodus, not only has all that happened, but the the tabernacle, the structure that God gives Moses the blueprint for up on Sinai, has now finally been built. That's the very the very last thing that happens at the, at the end of the book of Exodus. In Exodus forty, Moses builds the tabernacle, and uh, and at the in the very very last moments of of the book of Exodus, God. Um, uh, comes and dwells in the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, and this is, you don't understand Leviticus without understanding this important principle, which is uh, the tabernacle is God's house, right? It is the, it is the, the building that, in which God literally dwells, and it sits right in the middle of the Israelite camp. And, uh, and, and, so, and so that's the last thing that's happened in, in, in Exodus is God has come down and, and taken up residence uh, in his new home, uh, the tabernacle. So that's where we are. Would I be right? Well, is, would this do as a summary to sort of say, so far, we've had a series of stories about God's relationship with the world and mankind. And at this point, they're now moving in together. God is coming to live with one specific peoples. But in order to do that, he's going to have to lay down some house rules about how this relationship is going to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, God gives up on all of mankind, right? Like pretty early in Genesis, yeah. right? The, the, it's not all mankind, but by the time we get, we're 11, we're, you know, we're 11 chapters into Genesis. By the time God's like, okay, the, the whole, every, I can't deal with everyone anymore, right? This, this isn't going to work. I'm going to just deal with this one people and hopefully that'll... I don't know, like uh, like by osmosis, everybody it'll 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 work for everybody. Um, so we've been just with the the family of Abraham and the and the Israelites for since Genesis twelve. Uh, but yes, they've been um, you know there's been sort of a, a a familial relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that's involved. I'll take care of you and I'll make promises to you and all these things. Um, and and now uh, and, and yeah and and now God has said okay, like you're a big people now, right? Totally multiplied in all the ways that you were supposed to. And I'm, I'm going to be bringing you through this wilderness into the, prom the land that I had promised. 
and uh, I'm going to live among you now and and then in the land also. Uh, and so, uh, first of all, I need to tell you exactly the kind of house I like. So we get all of these really detailed uh, building instructions and, and blueprint stuff. So here's here's what I like my house to look like, please. Uh, down to the very last peg and socket and, you know, incredibly, it's just so painful. Um, uh, and so they've, and so they build the house to its specifications. And now, just as you said, uh, in, in Leviticus, God's like, okay, now here is how you keep my house clean. It, it basically, it, it's really the, the overarching issue for at least the first half of Leviticus is, is God's concerned about how you will make sure that God remains happy in his new home uh, and in his home when it's not new anymore. Uh, how do you, and, and mostly it's, it's how do you, how do you keep it clean, right? A house that gets too dirty, no one wants to live in. Um, so this is, this is the primary, the primary aim of certainly the first 16 chapters or so of uh, Leviticus. Okay. So I want to pull apart all of that, the God, the God living with you, the house and the clean bit. Um, yeah. I, I have one more sort of um, source question. This is, well, is it? Is this all P, Leviticus, or is there other bits woven in there? Uh, good. So I know what P is, and you know what P is. Does yeah. everybody else here know it? No, when I say, when yeah. we say, is this all P? It, especially that one sounds funny. Um, uh, so, right. So I, I said before, right, there, there are essentially four sources of the of the Pentateuch. Um, and we refer to them all by... I, I think what I'll do is I'll link to one of your previous interviews on the documentary hypothesis in, like, the show notes. So we can Terrific. do, like, a quick overview here, but then if Ter people want to hear more, we can just sort of direct them that way. Totally. Um, in any case, you know, yeah, of, of, the four, of, of the four sources, the one we refer to as P is the one that... It's called that... stands for priestly. Hmm. Uh, and it covers... It begins in Genesis 1, but it covers the entirety of uh, of Leviticus as well. So there's nothing non-priestly in Leviticus at all. It's uh, it's all priestly writing from from start to finish. There's none of the, none of the other sources um, of the four sources are in here. That's kind of new though, right? Because um, Genesis and Exodus have been a whole sort of mishmash, like like almost like sentence by sentence split. From sometimes, different texts. Uh, sometimes it, it, it's new. It's not it's not entirely new. When, when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll suddenly encounter a source that takes up 98 percent of that book. Um, uh, it, but again, we, we shouldn't think of it as like, oh, something strange or weird has happened here. Mm -hmm. It's just that the the priestly storyline is actually very spotty through Genesis and Exodus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't have all of the wonderful, many of the wonderful stories. You know, there's no Adam and Eve. Uh, there's no sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, there's virtually no Joseph story. In the, so, like, stuff that takes up big chunks of Genesis and Exodus, P is just, like, is skipping through. Hmm. It, 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 it's like like Reader's Digest notes. Like, yeah, yeah, then Joseph went to Egypt, and then everyone else came down, too. Anyway, uh, but then when P gets to this part, it's got all the things to say. Because the canonical compiled text is ordered chronologically— if there comes a moment in one of the stories where, you know, for a month at this mountain in the wilderness, God gives instructions hmm. about, you know, that means that the whole canonical text has to stop there, too. Hmm. Right? There's nothing to interweave because there's no story that is taking place during this time. The next thing that's going to happen in all of the sources is Israel's going to leave Sinai. Yeah. So 
if P's got a whole book's worth of stuff to say, that's what we get here. And presumably J or whatever doesn't. They don't have anything. No, no, to no. Throw J has very little to say, and, and, and what it had to say, it said already, uh, already in Exodus. So what would his book could? Because there's like no place I can go and just read the priestly source, right? What would it look like? I mean, before... so so the 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 answer as of this conversation is no. Uh, in about a year or so, I would guess the answer to that specific question about P will be yes. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Leanne Feldman, uh, who's at NYU, uh, is in the process of publishing uh, essentially a critical edition of of P. So uh, that, an English translation that will allow you to read the whole thing from start to finish. It's a wonderful project uh, that I think is going to make this difficult literature actually really like accessible and uh and, and, and comprehensible in a way that it hasn't been. The other sources, you could read, the, the D source is just Deuteronomy, you can read right. it. Um, J and E are, are harder to come by. I hope at some point they'll be out there, whether by me or, or someone else. But yeah, it's, uh, they're a little tricky to find just isolated. The priestly one is coming now. But so this is my question, because I can't, if I did read this future book, um, presumably like the intro into Leviticus wouldn't be that long, right? What would, what what would have been covered there? How would, because we did the general composite intro. How if I was reading the the original re reconstructed, whatever you want to call it, if I was reading the original, how might my perspective be different on nature of God or just the narrative details coming into this versus the the one we're all familiar with, like that? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I mean, what you would discover is just how quickly the text gets us to this point. Mm. Um, yeah, you're going to be missing tons of good stories uh, that you're used to. Mm. Uh, but you, you, I mean, what you'd find is the creation of the world in Genesis 1. You'd find, you know, a quick uh, genealogy to get you to the flood. Mm. You get a flood story, not exactly the one that we have, right? That's a, a composite text also. Um, but you get the priestly version of the flood story, and then you get some uh, some very quickly moving, uh, in, you know, into Abraham. You get a, a little wait to talk about Abraham burying Sarah, chapter Genesis 23. And then it would really quite quickly just like, Move you almost in genea almost in a genealogy, not quite, but uh, like an annotated genealogy mm. through through the end of Genesis, mm. uh, just little bits and pieces. You'd get the enslavement of uh, of Egypt uh, of Israel in Egypt in a handful of verses. Uh, you'd get uh, P's version of the plague story and the and the Passover event. Um, in Exodus, which is a, a big deal, right? The moment of God taking uh, Israel out. Uh, you get them crossing the Red Sea, much like in all the movies. Mm. Uh, and then, like, in a handful of verses later, they would, having crossed the sea, they would have arrived at, uh, at Sinai, where, uh, you know, God comes down on the mountain uh, and uh, Moses goes up and gets the blueprint for the tabernacle, and here we are. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I just did this the other day. I was thinking to myself, uh, I was looking at, um, uh, I was just looking at the tabernacle construction stuff in Exodus, uh, which is roughly 12 chapters worth. Um, uh, and I think that everything in P prior to 
the beginning of the tabernacle building instructions uh, is only like 15 total chapters worth if you were to smush it all together. So in other words, it would, and, and that's, then you get 12 chapters of tabernacle, 26 chapters of, 27 chapters of Leviticus, 10 more chapters of Numbers. So it would feel like you would sort of rushed, really rushed through the story to get to this moment. And it would just be so, so much more apparent that this is what this author cared about and was, was really aiming at. And it's not surprising, right? If you're a priest, the moment of the building of God's house and the moment when God takes up residence in it, and then you as a priest, it's your job literally to maintain that. Of course, this is what you care about, right? Everything else is just backstory to get to this moment, which is this, the defining moment for, um, you know, you asked about what we know about God's relationship with Israel. And the answer is not a ton. Hmm. You know, there will be some promises made. Uh, in, in, in Genesis and some promises, you know, sort of fulfilled in Exodus in terms of taking the people out. But um, but e even, you know, even within uh, the priestly material in Exodus, uh, in the tabernacle uh, stuff, there's a moment when God says, uh, I'm going to dwell among you and you'll know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order that I might dwell among you. Mm. So like, this isn't something that sort of like just happened. This was this is the point, right? The the creation of the home, the indwelling of the deity among the Israelites, and then all of the rules about it. This is what everything was leading up to. The, okay, here's here's one that confuses me though. The tabernacle is a stand-in for the temple. No. Yes, uh, the the tabernacle. Yes and no. Okay. Um, yes and no. I mean, there, certainly it's easy enough to think about this as the tabernacle is like a retrojection of the temple back into Israel's sort of mythical early history. Uh, assume that the priests work in the temple and they want to establish the temple as having been commanded by God way back when Israel was in its formative years. Okay, so that obviously couldn't have been before the Exodus. It must have been in the wilderness. We must have, and, and what would it look like? Well, it had to be portable, so it's gotta be more of a tent than, you know, it can't be made out of stone. Hmm. So they're sort of retroverting the the temple into, uh, into a portable tent sanctuary. So that much I think is, is, is accurate. I do think that there would probably was something akin to a portable sanctuary space that existed in Israel prior to the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, I think it was probably one among many holy sites in, in Israel, but we, I mean, we even have stories about it elsewhere in the Bible, right? But the story of the Ark of the Ark of the Covenant exists uh, in something like a tent uh, in the, in the sanctuary at Shiloh and David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. So he goes and he grabs it and there's a whole story about, about the Ark and it gets captured, you know, so it's got its own identity. And, it, uh, and my, my guess is that this priestly version of the, of the, the tabernacle is something like a retro version of the temple mixed with the memory of there having been, and, you know, and the Ark of the Covenant, P wouldn't call that the ark was a real thing I think right it's not it's not something that was invented and it was really at the center of a of a, of a cultic sacred space um, and it probably it almost certainly was in the temple uh, for most of the temple's history if not all of it 
but I think it existed before that in some other form. So it's a mixture of a retrojection and some sort of historical memory. Maybe. Yeah, which 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 is not unusual. I no. mean, that's, and the context that's... in the context of like ancient Mesopotamian religion, gods moving around, like a god is in this place and then he's in the other place. That's pretty par for the course, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not weird in, in that context. And of course, it rings weird to modern ears because we all sort of have grown up over 2000 years uh, with the notion of the omnipresent deity, right? Omnipresent and invisible and omniscient and omnipotent and uh, all of these things that have nothing at all to do with ancient Israelite or Hebrew Bible views of the deity and its and its character, right? Those are all Neoplatonist uh ideas that that you know entered into the picture at a late a later date um so god is actually okay so to we did a bunch of like ground setting but we've got our background god is coming to live with the israelites right. the actual physical like the actual physical deity is coming to live in an actual physical house <laughs> Right. Uh, this it's not a metaphor, and it's not like it's it's not some you know they. This is what's being claimed, right? Mm -hmm. the, the 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 actual right the actual deity who looks like and acts like a person but better, uh, and you know has the shape of a person, but probably better, uh, is coming to live in a house like a house a person would live in, but the house is better. <laughs> okay. So, but like here's one of the things that like both sort of blows my mind but i just find so fascinating is like what were they visualizing like i always like like were they visualizing like we do the resurrected jesus like yeah he's a god but like looks like a dude he's a dude he's in a dude's body <laughs> or is it something like a bit more supercharged than that like so it's 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 supercharged is probably good um there's a, a book literally just came out at least it just came out in america it's been out for a while in england uh called um God and Anatomy uh, by uh, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. Um, and it's, this was is she, the... Was she just on Digital Hammurabi? Yeah, she, yeah, she was. Yeah, I, I think I saw I, that interview. I'm sure she anyway, was. yeah. Uh, right. So that's, that's a great resource for, for learning about, um, uh, for learning about this notion of the sort of the, the shape of God. But, but yeah, you know, when you read the Bible, there's all sorts of references to God's hands and feet and god walks and you know moses sees god's back and you can't see god you're not allowed to see god face to face except sometimes you do um isaiah sees god sitting on a throne wearing a robe right like how much more we could say take all of them and be like ah that's just you know it, it, that's just our way of talking it's not doesn't have to do okay but that's that's nonsense right like <laughs> That itself is us trying to impose a, a, a later understanding of God onto texts where clearly God was anthropomorphic. Um, how, you know, size? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like, did God have a beard? Probably. Uh, but, uh, you know, was it well-kempt? I don't know. Uh, so it's the details are hard, to, are hard to come by. And, of course, part of the claim of the text of the Bible almost everywhere is that, with a very few exceptions, no one can ever see God. Hmm. So they're imagining God in clearly human form, but also recognizing that this is a deity that is, if not invisible, mm. uh, it's a deity that is not visible. 
That I'm not. Sense. I'm not sure I understood the last I mean, distinction. That is, you're you 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 can't see God in the sense of you're not permitted oh, to see. Oh, okay, God. I see. Um, so he's not there. The sense, he, not not I think so much in the sense of God is by nature invisible. So there really is something behind the curtain, but you're certainly not allowed to look back there. Right, and in fact, right, and, and the curtain is a great is a great. Uh, I don't know if you meant it literally or metaphorically, but of course, inside the tabernacle, there is a curtain that separates God's inner chamber, where God says that in this in my inner chamber, that's where I'm going to sit and that's where I'll talk to you, and that's like that's where I'm going to be hanging out. And there's a curtain that divides that so that uh, the priests who work in the outer chamber never get to see behind it. And the only person who can ever go behind it is the high priest. And he can only go behind it every so often. And when he does, he's got to bring like incense and create smoke in front of him mm. so that he so, to shield him right from 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 seeing God and probably vice versa. Um so the, if you're going to those lengths to avoid seeing God, it must be possible to see God, at least yeah. within this. Yeah. Why? And I mean, and we, and, and we have, and we have I mean, not necessarily from the priestly source, but we have story after story upon a uh, story upon story about people seeing God and it being amazing. Right. Like, you know, there are the lines like, you know, you, you know, no man can see me face to face except Moses. Right. Mm. Or, um, you know, they and and they looked upon God, and miraculously they lived. Right? You get these occasional notes like this, which suggests, yeah, you you can, but it's super dangerous. <laughs> why? Why? Why does it kill you if you look at God? That's a bit I've never understood. Because it's just sort of almost like assumed knowledge. You get this stuff, but make sure they don't look at me because they'll die. And Moses well, is I like, mean, yes. Okay, but 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 you know you know why that that is the it's the Wizard of Oz, right? right. Because because if they what if 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 everyone in Israel is terrified at the possibility of seeing God, not that gonna... means that no, that means no one looks behind the curtain because you and I know that when they look behind the curtain, they're not going to find anything, <laughs> right? So like, uh, you know, that that, that to me is uh, in a sort of medicine. It's just it's a, it's self protection, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it it keeps people away from. It it's also keeps people outside, you know, away from cultic spaces that could be, you know, that the priests want to control. Um, but it's basically the same phenomenon. But it is, this is, because so much of this, and certainly the sacrificial systems, is, like, not that far away from anything else they might be doing in this sort of geopolitical ecosystem. The bit that's different is their gods are physical, but no, no, they're there, and it's this statue of Marduk, or whatever. Right. Here, right. here it's there, and it's physical, but it's not, it's not coat the same thing as this statue yeah um that's right the 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 unique thing about israel i mean one of the major unique things there aren't really that many but one of them certainly is this whereas as you say whereas other surrounding cultures have their have their sanctuaries have their temples and have the deity physically visibly present in it hmm. Um, you know, in Mesopotamia, they bring it out and parade the statue around. And uh, 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 Israel's understanding, seemingly fairly widespread, was, uh, yes, the deity may be there, but we don't make statues of our deity because our deity is not to be represented that way. Now, this may simply, like so many of the other things, be like, here's how we're different from you. 
Mm. Right. It may be an identity formation kind of thing. Like we're going to we we separate ourselves from the and distinguish ourselves from our neighbors by not doing the same thing that they do. Um, but in any case, I, I don't know how to I don't have a great explanation for it as a phenomenon, but it does seem to be a pretty widespread biblical Israelite uh, concept is, uh, yeah, our God's really there and really is anthropomorphic and really is potentially visible. But we don't see that we don't see our God and we don't represent our God in that sort of very direct way um, that that our other people's do. Okay, so to recap, do you think we're going to get to Leviticus today? I don't know. I don't know. Let's get to Leviticus. I've got a Bible here. Okay, so we get to Leviticus. God moves in, and then he's going to lay down. Let me go to the first chapter. What you need to do to keep him happy and keep him there, and we go straight to. If his offering is burnt from from the herd, he shall offer a male. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. I'm not going to get through all this. Can you summarize the yeah. the offerings? Like before we get to the why, what is being requested that that happen to keep God happy? Sure. Um, so we want to think about sacrifice in the priestly system, and uh, remembering that what we're reading Leviticus is unique to to, to the, the P source and it's, it's notion of how sacrifices work. Um, uh, there are two basic divisions of, uh, of sacrifices. Uh, there are voluntary sacrifices and involuntary sacrifices. And the book starts with the first three chapters are voluntary sacrifices. You feel like you just want to make an offering. Uh, just whenever, whenever the hell you feel like it, you say, you know what? I had a great I had a great week in the stock market. I'm going to sacrifice a cow, uh, and thank and thank you know thank Yahweh that way for for having done so. Okay, here's how you do that, uh, and and this is so three chapters of you know you want you just want to do it. Terrific. Here's the rules for how you do it. Um, and you know they involve right the the process right. You you have to put your hands on the animal to signify your ownership of it and the transference of uh, of of ownership to the deity, and then it's killed, and then it's either cut up or it's not, and it's burned, and the various bits and pieces are are put together. And say it's the kind of say you know you could do a whole burnt offering where the whole animal gets uh, burnt up, or you could do the kind where. Uh, the, they cut up the animal and some of it gets burned on the altar and the priests eat some of it and you eat some of it. Um, so, you know, it's like the, the party, the party sacrifice, right? It's the, it's the, the family barbecue um, where and that's the kind that's offered like on, on festivals, right? You want to go, uh, you want to go have like a big, a big to do and you and your whole household go and you do this offering and you get all this meat back and then you cook it and everybody's hanging out and having a good time. Those are voluntary sacrifices. They're easy. They're ubiquitous. Um, Every every and I should say everybody out, including not just the priestly source, but everybody knows about those those kinds of sacrifices. They're everywhere in the Bible, starting with, you know, Cain and Abel, uh, who are the first ones to try and offer sacrifices and 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 on on and on um, either a burnt offering or the one where you get to eat some. Those are the those are the, the two categories everybody else in the Bible knows about. And then the priest author was like, ah. But I have I have more more sacrifices that uh, that are required, and these are the ones that really have to do. Um, if the first set, the voluntary ones, have to do with like if you feel like making God happy, here's a nice way to do it. The involuntary sacrifices, which take up the next few chapters, uh, are the ones that are really uh, crucial for uh, for keeping God uh, keeping God like in his, in his home. Uh, 
and the the sacrifices here are come in a couple of uh, a couple of different flavors. Um, uh, there's sacrifices for if you unintentionally violate some sort of uh, ritual command. Uh, so you, you've made, you've made some sort of error, you know, you've sinned, uh, not in the broad Christian sense of sinning, but in a more specific sense. Um, uh, and, uh, and so you need to bring a, a sacrifice for that. Or let's say, uh, on the other hand, let's say that you, um, uh, for another type of sacrifice, if you accidentally, uh, if you accidentally touch something sacred, right. And therefore sort of profane it with your not sacredness. <laughs> um, you need to bring a different kind of sacrifice uh, for that, though they're sort of conceptually related. Um, and so they, they sort of put in place a system that in theory requires sacrifice from Israelites more often than just whenever they feel like it. Um, the, the key here for understanding how, how does this, okay, how does any of that relate to, to God's house? Um, and, and, and the answer is, uh, is sometimes hard to get our heads around, but then you just need to make one little conceptual leap, which is uh, in the priestly mind. When you sin, uh, you've done something wrong. Like you've just com you've com you've committed an act, but nothing about you personally has changed. You just you just screwed up, right? It's unintentionally you didn't mean to, but like you accidentally I don't know like uh, you accidentally did a little bit of work on the Sabbath because you forgot what day of the week it was. Hmm. Right, like, okay, like, you're bad, like, no one's angry at you, uh, but the sin you've committed, that sin takes on like a, uh, like a sort of reality of its own, and the sin contaminates the sanctuary. It's like, the sin is magnetically attracted to the sanctuary and, like, adheres to it. And sin is yucky, right? Um... And so the sacrifice that you offer when you commit a sin is not to fix you. It's that the blood of the sacrificial animal gets collected and then sort of like sprinkled around the sanctuary to clean it. Blood, the, the great phrase that one of our you know, uh, one of the great scholars of this uh, created was uh, blood. Blood in the priestly system is a ritual detergent. It's the thing that cleans uh, up the dirty sanctuary. Uh, so when you sin, your sin contaminates the sanctuary. You make an offering. The priests sprinkle the blood and your sin is, is cleaned up. This is true also, uh, not just if you sin, uh, but if you become impure, and there's a whole bunch of chapters in Leviticus about impurity and what generates it. If you become impure, uh, your impurity also uh, contaminates the, the tabernacle if it's like a severe enough kind of impurity. Um, and you need to do a sacrifice to get rid of that too. The impurity system is complicated. Um, uh, and I don't know how far down that rabbit hole we want to go, but you know, there, there, there are, there are things that are, you know, uh, <clears throat> there, there are things that are uh, uh, severe impurities that require sacrifices and like, almost quarantining hmm. uh and there are things that's like it does it's not a big deal like just you know take a bath and you're good so let me summarize back to you to see if i understand because this is like way different than like 
than, than any system that we have now or have ever really participated in, yeah. Okay, so there's a category of things called sins. These can go all the way up to, like, you know, murder or something, but all the way down to, oh, I, f I forgot it was the Sabbath and I picked up some sticks, right? There's also a thing called being pure and impure, and it's almost sometimes one gets the feeling a bit like having the cooties, in that if you touch something gross, you become impure, and you need to purify yourself. Here's the difference. That doesn't just affect you. Purity and sin build up in God's house. The house gets messy. God doesn't want to live there anymore. So if, it, if, it, if that's allowed to persist, God will leave and that will be bad. So we have to, and there's no, there's no thought here of like, well, just don't ever sin or don't ever be impure because some of you're never going to avoid it completely, especially with the impurity stuff. Like right. you're, you're going to just, it's it's inevitable that you will be impure some of the time. So it's inevitable. It's it's it's, it's very like living in an actual house. There's never going to be a, a state where it gets so clean you never have to clean it again. It's just you continually have to just pick up after yourself. Right. And 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 and, and to to build on that, you're absolutely right. It, it's especially because when we talk about sin in this context, we're always at this point at least talking about unintentional sins. Hmm. So, it's not even like um you couldn't avoid it if you wanted to. You didn't mean to do it in the first place, right? Hmm. You forgot. Uh, or you made a mistake, right? And then you went, oh, God, it's it's Saturday. I'm not supposed to be picking up sticks. I've, like, I, I've created sort of this metaphysical dirt that I now need now need to, 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 to clean up. And impurity, um, impurity even, even more so, because you say impurity, unavoidable, in large part because there are things that make you impure that are, I don't know, like required for life, right? Sex makes you impure. Burying someone makes you impure. Having a baby makes you impure, right? There's there's no, none of these things are wrong, right? Neither unintentional sins nor impurities have any moral valence to them whatsoever. They are totally normal parts of life. Virtually everyone would have been impure and vir today virtually everyone is impure all the time. Being impure is totally cool. You can be impure, it's not a big deal. And again, most, the vast majority of impurities, like, if when you have sex, right? Uh, if you have sex, you have um, uh, the male is impure, right? Uh, because genital emissions are always in, uh, impurifying. Uh, but this is obviously a necessary one. So you have sex, you're impure. Oh my God, what do you do? Literally, you take a bath, and and that's it, right? Like you don't have to do. There's no sacrifice needed, right? You take a bath. This is actually the, the requirement of bathing as a as a way of removing ritual impurity is a large part of why, you know, uh, I mean, that that story explains why Jews got massacred after the Black Death in Europe, because they didn't get affected as much because they were taking baths all the time for ritual reasons. So they had better hygiene. So they like they survived in greater numbers. And of all the Christians dying, were like. How come they're surviving? I bet they started it and then killed all of us. Anyway, uh, anyway. But in, point is, in contrast, there was an English king whose name escapes me, who was considered a, a, a very womanly figure because he bathed once every six weeks, whether he needed it or not. <laughs> right. Um, I can't imagine how you'd end up with a plague. Uh, so, um, so impurities and no, that was Elizabeth. Sins... Anyway, sorry. Continue. Impurities, <laughs> impurities and unintentional sins are 
totally normal and fine. And there are, and like, okay, so you just take, you just take care of it. Um, uh, so yeah, as exactly as you said, the house is never going to be perfectly clean. Um, but of course, uh, within the system, there is also the recognition that over a bunch of time, the house analogy works so well, right? Like you can clean, you know, I clean the house every day, you know, I tidy stuff up and I put things away and I do the dishes. And after a while you start to notice, oh man, like underneath the couch is pretty gross. And like, what is that, you know, gross thing that's like leaking out from the refrigerator? And you're like, okay, spring cleaning or fall cleaning, whatever it is, we're going to do the whole thing. And we're going to like make it real good because it's not that I, it's not that I intentionally left that stuff. I didn't even know it was there. And that's the Passover is. Ritual. No, not Passover. That's your. Oh, sorry. Um. But, okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. and, that, and, that, and that's. That's your In Leviticus 16. So you get Passover's the. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, you get all these laws like, here's the sins, here's the sacrifices, here's all the ways you can become impure. And then they're like, okay. Once every so often, though, you might just want to, like, essentially reset the whole thing to to, to ground zero. And, it, and and they really, they talk about it in sort of hard to follow ways, but they, they talk about this this major spring cleaning ritual as being, um, it's essentially resetting the sanctuary back to its like, its factory settings. Um, like just like it was the, the day it was inaugurated, you know, uh, uh, back when, when Moses first built it. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a more involved ritual that involves more animals and more blood. And this is the moment where the blood, the priest, the high priest goes into the innermost chamber and doesn't go in there just for funsies, right? He goes in there so that he can put the ritual detergent blood in the innermost chamber, right? Like you got it, you got it, like you got, it's like pulling the refrigerator out and like, you know, getting underneath there or pulling up the, the couch. You got to get into all the nooks and crannies and get any of those sins and impurities that have gotten in there. And so that's what that that's what that uh, that special day is for. It's the like, if if I have to clean up from unintentional sins whenever I have them, I have to have known that I unintentionally sinned in order for that to happen, right? I have to be like, oh fuck, it's Saturday, hmm. uh, I and I picked up twigs. But if I never occurred to me, like if if that moment hadn't happened, I'd still picked up twigs on that on that Sabbath. And so my sin is still contaminating the sanctuary. So every so often you got to get in there and just clean the whole thing out. It's a maintaining. Like it, this I found interesting because it did make me jump to metaphors. And one of them, it is literally like living with someone. Like if you're married, I think, I don't know, to, to, here's Toby's dating advice. But like, I think if you approached marriage with a sort of ethos of like an ideal, you need to have you know, be in a perfect state of bliss all the time. That might not be the most useful way to think about it. Not all of your relationship, but part of the relationship is you're going to annoy each other from time to time. You are going to literally make a mess of the space you're in. It's not ideal, but like just clean up after yourself. Just and you, yeah. if you live with someone, you will develop just little de-escalation rituals. You will just develop rituals of just like picking up after yourself, and mm -hmm. it's like it's just like not as either elevated or as awful as religious visions can seem to make it. It's like just pick up after yourself. Like that's sort of the the bottom line. Yeah, and and you know to 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 take that maybe maybe further. 
Yeah, pick up after yourself. It, I mean, it's a lovely way of thinking about it, right? And this, that's what this is. is. God has come to live with us, and we need to make sure that we keep God happy by, by keeping the house clean. But when you think about that for a second, that's like a wild religious, like that's a wild theological sentiment. It's also, it's a, it's a, it's a theology that's been like worked out in such unbelievable detail over yeah. the, the course, the course of, the, of these books, um, or of course, of these chapters. The notion that the the rationale for sacrifice is entirely to keep the deity uh, happy and and sort of present. Uh, the thing I love most about it, and the, the thing that I, I think makes it, I, I, despite it being impossible to read, once you figure it out, I think this is it is among the most meaningful sort of theological or you know conceptual sentiments in the entirety of the Bible. It's it's entirely community focused. That is, yeah. the deity's presence in, is in the midst of the community, and the deity's departure would be death and destruction for the for the community as a whole. So it's it's entirely communally focused in terms of its outcome. Its responsibility is entirely individual. Hmm. Right? It's why you your little one sin is not the is not like that one cup you left on the counter is not the thing that makes the house unlivable. But if we all left our plates out all the time, it would quickly become a pigsty. So if we all just do our job and take care of our own messes, we do something we do something remarkable in terms of a community outcome. And to what makes that even even more the case in terms of the the individual community nexus here is unlike so much theology uh, of types that I'm not going to name, but they're Christian, hmm. is right, the where, where the focus is on individual salvation, mm. like what do I do to ensure that I get into heaven? Mm. Right. This entire ritual system, despite the fact that you're the individual bringing the sacrifices, is totally uninterested in you and your individual fate. Yeah. Right. When you sin, it's not like, oh, no, your character and like you've got to redeem yourself somehow. No one cares. Right. You made a mistake and you sinned and nobody cares about the fate of your eternal soul. What we care about is. Okay, what what that meant is you made kind of a mess. Like, could you just please clean it clean it up for us? Mm. Like, that's that's the whole extent of it. But right? once and once you've cleaned up your mess, the text says, mm. you're forgiven. Right? It's not you're forgi- It's not you're forgiven because right? Like you've made amends in some moral ethical sense. You're forgiven because in the same way that if my kid accidentally drops and breaks a plate, I'm like, that's not a big deal. Like, I'm not mad at you. Just just clean it up. And when they clean it up, I'm like, cool. Yeah. But if they didn't clean it up, I'd be like, oh, it's like that's the problem. Yeah. The problem is you made a mess and you clean it up. It's not that you accidentally made a mess. Mm. That's that's the principle here. And I think that that's I think that's like such a like a wonderful framework and a counterbalance to so much of uh, of how people I don't know understand the Bible and, and theology. Just a different version of sin as well, because you know there are certain theologies, and I shan't name them, but they are Christian. Mm. That, and I don't think all Christianity, and I don't think early Christianity, this is how they thought about it. But like, sin is like a permanent, a permanent feature of yourself that you 
there's something deeply wrong with you. And I, I watched, uh, this is kind of on my mind bugging me now, because I'm, I'm around religious people all the time, but like about a specific, well I will name it now, a specific sort of strain of like American born again religion. But it's not that people have different views to me. I talk to people of all sorts of different religious and political views. I just, there's something about like, don't talk to me in that tone of voice. Thank you. Like, account of sin. That I just don't particularly like. It's You're coming in with a pretty hard judgment about me. Right off <laughs> yeah. the bat. You know? Yeah. Whereas I don't think P has a... Well, I don't know, but like my impression is it doesn't have a super oh. elevated view of mankind either. But it's not like I am you specifically, Joel, are a shitty, awful person. And unless you pray in the way I say, you're never going to find peace in your life. It's much more like, dude, we all have to live together and get on together. And like, you got to pick up your stuff. Like, that's all it is. And that, that's the extent of my interest in you. Right. And I mean, you know, there's there's more to be said about this. We we certainly only made our way halfway through Leviticus, uh, and fine. But you know, the the priestly text here, at least in the first half of Leviticus, and the stuff we've been talking about, it's not really interested in morality at all, individual morality at all. It doesn't care. It doesn't. It's not about how good a person you are, and it's not about. Certainly not about being. There's no notion of being born as a, a sinner or being, you know, inherently sinful anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but it's. It is. It is truly like it's so laser focused on the tabernacle and on God's house, right? Like because why? Like you're you individual. You why you're not that important. Mm. You know that what's important is the community, right? This is a, this is a, the temple belongs to everyone, right? God is, belongs to everyone. Um, the priests are here to serve and represent everyone, right? The priests walk into the sanctuary with, you know, stones on their breastplate and on their shoulders that have the names of the tribes of Israel on them. They are, they are public servants, right? They're public servants representing us. Um, like, why do you, why would any Israelite, said so this is P talking, right? Why would, why would you think that, anyone cares about your fate, right? Like we're, we're after something much, much bigger here, right? Everyone's, everyone's fate is, is, is at play here. So like, this is, don't make this about you. Um, right. This is about, we all have to, we all have to participate in this and the better we are all, at, we all are at it, the better it'll, you know, the more we are going to maintain this thing indefinitely. Let's end with this. This is like, an editorial statement on my part about, like, what the value of reading scripture is, which I don't necessarily see in an absolutely foundationally different camp to, say, reading Plato or something like that. But if anyone knows Leviticus today, they know it for the thou shalt not lie with a man verse. And I think, like, hopefully what, what I tried to bring out in this conversation is, like, Never even mind that specific verse. I mean, I brought it up, so comment on it if you want to. But, like, if you're just taking a Bible and going, yeah, this bit here, that seems to validate modern conservatism, or this bit here, that seems to validate modern liberalism, and I'm just going through to just sort of find... And people do this with texts in the history of political thought all the time. Like, the worst take on Twitter a while back, there always is one, was Kant invented critical race theory. Because, you know, the yeah. critique of pure reason. And, like, okay, that's stupid. 
But it's also, that's not what that text is there for. The texts are a source of imagination, of political or moral imagination, in that they can just show you just a completely different conceptual framework for the world that might not be immediately useful to a partisan political struggle, but it's just kind of, like, interesting and cool to think about. That's my editorial statement. Yeah, it's... I, I rail regularly against the picking and choosing of verses and moments from the Bible from both sides, left mm. left and right, because, uh, you know, in in wh- whether you are picking out the verse in Leviticus, the, you know, anti-homosexuality uh, verse in Leviticus, or you're picking out, um, you know, some, some uh, you know, the rare the rare verse in the Bible that is good for liberal uh, causes. Um, um, condemnations of wealth. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's a few. I'm yeah. saying the balance is firmly on the other side, but that's that's yeah. fine. Um, uh, whichever one you're you're choosing, what you're saying is, like, picking like if I can find a verse in the Bible hmm. that justifies my 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 perspective, like that's that's a plus, hmm. right? Like as if as if we ought to be finding things in the Bible to justify our contemporary uh, political or moral or ethical positions. Uh, which is weird, because um, of course, uh, and, and you know, especially when when I one of the things I love about the kind of work that I do, and especially finding this stuff, in, you know, reading Leviticus like this is no one reads, no one reads this this way. In part because it's been embedded in like the the compiled the compiled combined Pentateuch for you know twenty five hundred years. So who's ever read it? Period. Um, but also because it's you know this stuff is really hard to read and like it's a genre that we're just not used to who reads sacrificial ritual law and is like ah and now i understand exactly the theology you know like we're just not trained to do it or at least most people aren't um but you know the the bible is of course you know this incredibly diverse conversation among as you said various people with various political and theological imaginings um and you know you pick one ver- you pick almost any verse out of it and i can show you another one that says something different uh, and and you, and, uh, and you miss the interesting stuff when you yeah. assume that there's a coherent narrative that like everything can be woven into like this one storyline that wouldn't you know it just happens to back up what your biases were going into it but even just the assuming one storyline of it we do this in christianity all the time there's a, there's a story about what jesus does for you that can seem like very just abstract and hard to work out what's going on. But if if you ask, you know, Paul, the historic Paul, what resurrection is, he has a specific story for you, and it's it's not the one they teach you in Sunday school. But it, it's you you get to see much more specific and interesting visions when you drop the requirement that it'll harmonise at the end of the if day. If you want, if you want, if you want everything. If you want the whole thing to say one thing, whatever that one thing is, is going to be incredibly banal. Yes. Uh, it's it'll be lowest common denominator kinds of uh, kinds of perspectives, and that does no service either to the ancient minds who created the text, nor to those of us who have inherited it, nor to the very text itself, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a text that encodes within it by its very structure multiple different interesting voices. For us to be like, you know what, I'm going to ignore the presence of all these interesting voices and I'm just going to like 
find I mean I'm just I'm gonna reduce it all to one thing like that's not it's not even the Bible anymore. <laughs> Should we leave it there? Fine by me. <laughs> That, that was exactly an hour, so that was well timed. I mean, I'll um, I'll throw it back to you in closing. Anything? I mean, there's there's a whole we didn't touch on eight. I mean, we, we didn't, didn't touch, touch on, on a million things. Right. Um, I don't care. Um, any any um final thoughts? Because the nominal topic is Leviticus. Any final closing thoughts on that that you think are like super duper important that we didn't get to? No, I mean, I, I no, I think that what. Nah, it's it's totally it's totally good. I mean, there's a million things to say. Mm -hmm. There's little details. There's bigger things. Again, we didn't talk about the second half of Leviticus at all, which is a, an entirely, you know, as you know, like a, a slightly different version of the whole thing that expands on the ideas that we did talk about uh, in, in really interesting ways that are actually more morally and ethically like uh, focused. But you know, there's so much to talk about. You can't talk about it all. And it's okay. I, I'd, I'd much rather we talk about the things that are we find mutually interesting and fun, and uh, and leave and leave people wanting more. I think that's a good thought. All right, um, let people know if they want to follow you on Twitter or direct them to a website or anything like that where they should go. Uh, yeah, I, my Twitter feed is uh, just at Joel Baden, my name. Uh, that's the place to find me, and through there uh, you can get links to. Uh, you'll find me doing my near verse by verse commentary in the entirety of the Pentateuch, uh, and uh, you know all sorts of other fun stuff too. I'm sure if you dig deep enough. Um, otherwise, you know, I've got a what feels like now a million podcasts and talks and stuff available on the on the internet, and you can. You can you can set those up for people to find if you've got them. I'll link to a couple of your stuff, and people should follow you on Twitter because your um, what Joel does is um, he just goes through and takes a few. You've gone through from the from Genesis through to in, we're in Numbers now, right? I am. I'm in Numbers three. Um, and just takes a few verses and just talks about historical context or anything like that or how to read these. Um, and it's just whatever, a, whatever, little... I, whatever I find interesting and, 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 and I'm doing. <laughs> but it, it's, yeah. it's, it's worth a follow. Anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. 